and welcome back to Favorite Things uh, for your second episode of this week. Uh, we don't typically do this, but since we had some extra time off, and we're trying to make up ground for Spider-Man films before Spider-Man No Way Home uh, in mid to late December, we just wanted to go ahead and catch up. And seeing as we just watched Amazing Spider-Man 2 last night, thought it'd be good to get while we were semi-fresh in the brain. Yeah. Uh, that said, we will still probably chase some rabbit trails. I will probably forget more than my fair share of names or details. <laughs> and if you enjoy listening to us at all, uh, we should be about on par for where we normally are. So, um, reflecting back on watching this movie last night, what did you think? Uh, this is the second time I believe that you and I have sat down and watched this movie together. Uh, together. The first time being in theaters yeah. in 2014 and now today. Um, I forgot most of it like normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I ugly cried. Mm-hmm. At the end, um, it was a really good movie. Yeah. And yeah. There's a lot to it. There's you know, there's a lot of investment in it. It's just like, oh, <laughs> it was good. Yeah. So for me, this one is one that I I feel like I I almost. Feel feel gaslit most of the time when people talk about this movie. People talk about this movie like it's worse than the worst Sam Raimi Spider-Man. That it's the worst Spider-Man movie of all time. That it's worse than Venom or Venom 2. And I get angry when people say that. Yeah. Um, for for a number of reasons, uh, but I I will I, I will share my general thoughts right now. Uh, and as always, these are my opinions, and that's honestly what this show is about. If you are looking for something objective with some measurable uh, rhetoric, you really need to do your research because we suck at that. <laughs> um, no, I. Uh, I really, really love this movie, and I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed it in 2014. I enjoy it now. Uh, if I ever see it on uh, a service or whatnot, I, I will lean into it. S Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 are the Spider-Man movies I want to watch more frequently even than Spider-Man Homecoming or Far From Home. Uh... I really love this movie. Um, I was... After we watched Amazing Spider-Man earlier this week and recorded the podcast, I was like, okay, that is such a good note to go out on. How... Uh, how bad is, is Amazing Spider-Man? How to... That I'm gonna... I'm gonna go in and be disappointed. Maybe it's low expectations going in every time I've watched it. Maybe it's um, 
maybe it's the time that I've been a Spider-Man fan and how storylines and, and things line up. I really enjoy this movie. I will fully admit this movie has problems. This movie has the same problems as Iron Man 2, as uh, Eternals, as Batman v Superman. It's got this, it's got a whole cinematic universe sitting on its shoulders and as a singular film it can't bear the weight of it and while those other movies that I mentioned I enjoy for different reasons being different products of what they are this this is one I enjoy as a whole by itself by the necessity of it never got a chance to to be anything more than what it is So, a little background for those of you who may not have been paying attention. Uh, Around 2008, a little film called Iron Man came out. Uh, And in that film, uh, through an end credits teaser, Marvel stated their intention uh, that they were going to do a universe of films. Which is a bold choice. Uh, It was... uh, It was a flag in the sand this is this is what we're doing Uh, we we have planted our flag we're going to do the avengers we're going to do a whole universe of marvel characters on film extremely ambitious even as a comic book fan i thought there was no way it could possibly be done i was wrong uh in 2012 we got uh marvel's avengers Um, where all of these characters that had been in various films on their own and popped up all came together in a film and it worked out, honestly, with a really good movie. Um, And around the same time that that film was being made, they were rebooting uh, the Spider-Man franchise uh, to be something different than the Sam Raimi franchise. And as these movies come out, Spider-Man is being kind of godfathered by the same producer as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So Kevin Feige is going into meetings with Amy Pascal, who is the head producer over at uh, Sony Pictures, and or studio head, I guess I should say, and is... He's going into meetings with her. He's like, hey, do this with Spider-Man. Don't do this with Spider-Man. Things like that. While not having full creative control like he does in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And The Amazing Spider-Man comes out. It is what it is. It's a kind of a hybrid of a, a Spider-Man movie and The Dark Knight. And it tells its own contemporary Spider-Man story. And it does it really well with really grounded performances and uh, even most of the special effects. It's it's a movie that some people love, some people don't. I'm in the love category. Uh, it is what it is. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a sequel to that movie, but is an entirely different monster. So this movie comes out Immediately, the color palette is a lot brighter. Mm -hmm. It is a lot more colorful. Uh, The characters 
are a lot more heightened. It is a lot less grounded than the original film, with the exception of Gwen and Peter, who are incredibly grounded uh, as as characters. They're giving real performances off of each other. Um, even at the beginning of this film, the Harry Osborne character uh, is a more grounded character. Now, that quickly goes sideways at the end, and it's one of the flaws in this movie, is that Harry turns about two-thirds of the way through the movie from a nuanced character who's kind of desperate into a cartoon uh, supervillain. Yeah. Um, but this movie... I feel is more misunderstood than bad. Um, I feel had this movie been received well enough that Sony went ahead and produced the products that they were wanting to turn up out of it, had those been successful, had they had they gotten a chance to pull off what they were trying to do, I think it would be better viewed in hindsight than it is now. But something that a lot of people forget is a significant portion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was not well received when it first came out because they are films that are setups for films years down the line. Iron Man 2 was blasted when it came out for how bad a movie it is. It's not a bad movie. Um, it's a setup movie. It's not a great standalone movie, but it's... A fun movie. Mm -hmm. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is trying to set up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a list of, of movies that this was trying to set up. Okay. And if if you lose the plot on where it was coming from, I'll point out where in the movie the, the setup is. It was setting up an Aunt May film uh, about her attempting to move on. It was setting up a uh, Black Cat and Silver Sable movie. Um, Harry's assistant, Felicia, is the Black Cat. Okay. Um, it was setting up a Sinister Six movie uh, with all of uh, Spider-Man's villains. Uh, in Secret Projects, you see all the Sinister Six's equipment uh, being uh, behind uh, glass walls. The Rhino was going to be a member of that. Uh, as well as the, the Goblin. It was setting up Amazing Spider-Man 3. Uh, which they actually filmed a decent portion of the setup storyline for that. And completely cut it out. There is a major character that is missing from this film. That was filmed for it. Uh, they, they have in full transparency. I admit this up front. They have too many storylines going at once in this movie. Yeah. Um, and they could have shed a few of them for fleshing out more of what worked. But, again, they were trying to get this, this shared universe off the ground. Originally in this film, uh, Peter was going to be introduced to Mary Jane Watson. Mm -hmm. And she was just going to be a friend. And she was going to be one of the inciting... Uh, conversations that brings him back as at the end as Spider-Man. And then the next film would have been about their romance. Huh. And uh, they chose, in my opinion, wisely, 
not to include her in this film. Yeah. Um, for a number of reasons. One, I feel like it would have diluted the relationship with him and Gwen. Yeah. Um, which is the center of this film. It is what makes this movie, in my mind, uh, and this is going to be blasphemy to a lot of Tobey Maguire fans, this movie is superior to every single Tobey Maguire Spider-Man film. Yes. I know that's blasphemy for a lot of people. <laughs> it's true. Uh, the things that people view distracting in this movie... Are they superfluous? Yeah. But none of the lows of this movie get to the lows of Spider-Man or Spider-Man 2 or most certainly Spider-Man 3. While the highs so far exceed those movies. Yeah. For me. This is again, for me. There's silly stuff like some song choices that maybe didn't age as well. Um, and it's just because of musical tastes. The Philip Phillips For You is a song choice that makes a lot of sense for 2014. Maybe doesn't make sense in 2021. But I would point to Macy Gray in 2002's Spider-Man. <laughs> or to any of the other soundtrack choices from the time period when any other Spider-Man movies made. Mm -hmm. Music is not typically timeless. Yeah. It is a point in time. And this movie is no different. I, I firmly believe that with some fine pruning, this movie might be considered one of the greatest superhero films of all time. <laughs> but it had so many things going against it. It was trying to build a cinematic universe, which it didn't do. Yeah. And a lot of that came down to, uh, in tw late 2014, early 2015, uh, Sony had a massive leak um, where all of their email correspondence was leaked out onto the internet. You can read those emails right now. Uh, emails including studio notes about Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, things that people said about actors and actresses that was honestly not great. Uh, that that was made public knowledge. Um, a lot of stuff goes down around this time. Also, at this point, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is in full swing. Around the time this movie came out, Captain America Winter Soldier, uh, which at that point was the highest critically and uh, audience rated Marvel film. Uh, that was a spy thriller and it, they were doing their own things, but it was still tying back into the greater universe. And so that movie comes out. A few months later, Guardians of the Galaxy is gonna come out. And these are setting the Marvel films in-house at Disney up as greats in, in cinema. When viewed by themselves, they're good, but they're a part of a, a greater cohesive whole. Whereas the Spider-Man films up to that point were their own thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel it's it's borderline unfair to compare them. Yeah. Because at that point, comparing superhero movie to superhero movie, you had a whole film franchise that had been building at two and three films a year since 2010. Uh, 
eat a couple in 2008. They took a break in 2009 to retool. Um, but at that point, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was 10 films. Amazing Spider-Man, at this point, they had rebooted. They had two movies. Mm-hmm. Two movies. And, and you're trying to compare them. And I don't believe that's, I don't believe it's fair. People do it, but I don't believe it's fair. Yeah. So, uh, I want to talk now a little bit more about the meta narrative around this movie and where it goes from here. And outside of really enjoying these two movies, uh, why, why is it important that we're watching the Tobey Maguire movies, which I'll admit I'm not the biggest fan of. I enjoy them. I enjoy them for what they are. They're kind of schlocky superhero movies from the early 2000s. But honestly, I'm not going to go revisit those a ton. Yeah. The Amazing Spider-Man films are, I would argue, good movies that are on the border of being great movies. And we're about to starting next week we're we're going to be talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Spider-Man and why do all these come together well back we're going to go way way back um people started talking about multiverses uh in comic book stories um you've got stories for dc comics you've got stories for marvel comics where there are alternate universes even in the 1960s there's the mirror universe for star trek well in the silver age of comics it became a way that you could tell different stories with the same characters without having narrative conflict uh that the character was in two places at one time uh, either emotionally or physically. You could tell a story where Batman is the Adam West kind of goofy, um, moralizing, bright, bright as day, pastel colors uh, superhero. And at the same time, you could be telling these gritty, dark detective stories. And the way you told that was through the multiverse. Uh, you had Earth 1 Batman, Earth 2 Batman. Uh, Earth 2 Batman had a daughter who was fighting crime while he was semi-retired. Um, and even Marvel started telling uh, their own what-if stories. Um, and people who watch Disney+, Plus, there's been an, a, a new Marvel show that gives you a taste of that. These alternate universes where stories are different than what you're familiar with and in the past two two and a half years marvel has started telling stories in the multiverse um telling stories of things that aren't familiar to the marvel cinematic universe and some of the things they've started playing with is they've started bringing in old actors and old characters and old concepts for characters and what has been rumored um, and according to some leaks possibly confirmed is that the Spider-Man villains and possibly Spider-Man heroes from previous iterations will be popping up in Marvel Cinematic Universe stories and so 
in Spider-Man No Way Home. In advertisements, we have always already had revealed that Dr. Octopus and the Green Goblin from the Sam Raimi films, uh, the Lizard from and Electro from the Amazing Spider-Man films, uh, are both going to be in this new Spider-Man. And I'm intrigued by this, but at the same time, I'm I'm very nervous. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at any Spider-Man movie before this one, or any superhero movie, the more characters you start adding, uh, the bigger narrative mess that it is to uh, unwind. Yeah. And I'm I'm nervous because the previous two. Uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movies that we're going to be covering in the next couple weeks are single villain affairs. Sure, they've got uh, backup characters that pop in here or there, but they're it's Spider-Man, his uh, mystery gang, just like on Scooby-Doo, and then the antagonist. And it tells a fairly straightforward story. And they're good stories. I enjoy them. But now we're talking about adding multiple villains and we're talking about talking about the multiverse and we're adding and so we've been going back through these movies to pick up plot threads uh what defines each character the fact that toby mcguire is a creep but somehow he's a really successful hero um the fact that andrew garfield is defined by tragedy um and uh, here soon we're going to be viewing a Spider-Man that is more defined by the heroes around him than defined by himself most of the time. And I think that's very interesting and very distinct. Each one has their ups and their downs and everyone has their personal favorite. But um, I'm... I'm hoping for an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, next week, we're actually going to take a break from the live action iterations to talk about a version of this story uh, where multiple Spider-Men arrive in a single film to talk about how you can do it correctly. <laughs> um, before we start getting into the Marvel Cinematic Universe lead up and talking about what's worked so far and I pray ends up paying off in live action so i'm i'm intrigued i'm nervous i'm uh i'm excited simultaneously um because i've enjoyed the journey this far uh i enjoy the thought that toby Maguire and the spider-man villains from those films might get to come back and maybe redeem the story of those films by giving us a sequel film that we didn't know we wanted. I'm hoping the same for Andrew Garfield uh, and and his amazing Spider-Man storyline. And simultaneously, I'm praying with all of that that we get a wrap-up on Tom Holland's Spider-Man that we go, man, that that was the Spider-Man movie that we needed. Yeah. Um, but I also want to appreciate that no matter what, tons of actors have worked 
tirelessly on three Sam Raimi films, on two Mark Webb films, and on three John Watts films that people have varying opinions on, but the actors, the actresses, the wardrobe people, everyone showed up and they tried. Yeah. Um, they may not have done what we wanted. <laughs> uh, they may not have even done something that is arguably good, but there's a lot of effort and energy that has gone into these. And as we talk today about Amazing Spider-Man, this is me talking to me right now. I want, as we talk about these films, to celebrate them. Mm-hmm. Leading into Spider-Man No Way Home and the fact that we are going to be able to say at the end of this entire podcast that uh, the Spider-Man film franchise... Spider-Man film franchise in 20... As of the end of December, in 20 years, the Spider-Man film franchise has been able to pull off... uh, I would argue one, two, three, four, five, six... uh, At least six good to great movies. Hopefully seven. With one that we admit exists and might be a mistake. (laughs) Yeah. But that's also not counting uh, three other movies where Spider-Man is a main character and is a central plot thread that we're not going over. We're not going to go over uh, Captain America Civil War. Uh, We'll mention it here in two weeks when we talk about Spider-Man Homecoming. We will talk about, after Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. We'll talk about the impact that those have on the Spider-Man franchise and how different it is that Spider-Man pops up in a non-Spider-Man movie. Yeah. And what works about that and what makes it hard. <laughs> um, but I wanted to give a little in the middle of this series. Oops. Yep, that's why we don't put phones on uh, <laughs> uneven surfaces. Um, I was just sitting there for like 20 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, but you chuckled and it fell. Apparently, Uh, I I wanted to give a reason why we're doing this. And also, I want to talk about my excitement leading into something so that at the end of this, I can say, man, I had a good run leading up to it and maybe they didn't nail it. Or we had a great run and I'm glad I watched all those going in because this tied the bow. And regardless, I think it was worth doing. So, uh, thank you for letting me ramble on for nearly 20 minutes about nothing. <laughs> we're gonna, when we come back, we're gonna talk about the plot uh, and some uh, things that we enjoyed and a couple of things we didn't enjoy about Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, spoilers, I really, 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 really enjoyed this movie, uh, but uh, there were a couple of things that left a, an aftertaste. So. Uh, Give us just a second. We'll be right back. All right. Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, Full transparency, I don't love the opening scene of this movie. Uh... So the opening scene of the film is uh, Richard Parker 
attempting to destroy the spiders at Oscorp and uh, get away uh, before he and Mary Parker are attacked and their plane is crashed. Um, I don't like it because one, there's no real payoff to it uh, in in the film. Um, it's a scene that was building to a revelation that they cut from the film. Uh, uh, the revelation that was going to be in the, the film and would have been a bad revelation, and I'm glad they cut it, uh, was that Richard Parker was still alive. Mary had died, but Richard was still alive. I'm glad they cut it. Yeah. Um, because at that point... It does, it does some things to the Spider-Man story that might work in a television show, but don't really work in a film franchise. Yes. Um, I appreciate what they were trying to do. They were they were trying to to fill in the gaps in our knowledge of who Richard and Mary Parker were, and um, ultimately, it. I think it. It doesn't lead anywhere. Um, we already know from the first film that uh, parents were involved in stuff, uh, that things were very secretive, that they left under mysterious circumstances. Yeah. We know that. And un unfortunately, when the movie comes up and raises things that could cause conflict on how we understand Mary and Re Richard Parker, mm -hmm. we already know that they're good guys because of this scene. So if you cut this scene out, it does not affect anything else in the film. Yeah. If they had wanted to do anything, they could have done a, a redo, a, a flashback of the of the opening of this film where Richard Mary Parker leave the house. Yeah. Because it's reminding us of what happened in the first film. Yeah. Would have worked, but the extended long scene where uh, Richard and Mary Parker are super spies doesn't add anything to the film. Uh, it's an interesting concept that has had mixed results in the comic books, yeah. uh, but in this film, it it doesn't help the story. Yeah. That's thing number one I don't love in this movie. It's incredibly well shot and yeah. well acted. It just doesn't add anything to the movie. Yeah. Uh, then we immediately get into a more heroic Spider-Man. The last movie was very dark, very brooding, um, very dark night. This movie is the antithesis of that. Right off the bat, it's broad daylight. Spider-Man is out swinging and, and saving people and stopping crimes in the middle of the city. Uh, he goes and he stops uh, Lexi, can't remember his name, he's going to be the Rhino, um, <laughs> and saves Max Dillon in the process. And throughout this opening scene, Andrew Garfield is on as Spider-Man. And he is hands down the best Spider-Man that we have seen. He is he is talking to people, he's, he's talking up the cops, he's... he's chatting up the criminals and making fun of them. It is Spider-Man from the comics animated show, anything that's not a live action movie, to a T. And it works so, so, so well. Yeah. 
And in the middle of uh, the chase, he gets stuck on the front of a police cruiser and he gets a call from uh, Gwen. Sorry, I keep wanting to say Emma Stone. Um, and and she's like, where are you? It's starting and it's their high school graduation. And he kind of plays it down, but uh, hangs up, stops the crime, stops Alexi from getting away with it. He's going to go to jail. And swings in for his graduation, gets his diploma, kisses the girl. Um, and during all of this, he sees... Uh, he sees Captain Stacy, the ghost of Captain Stacy, um, and he just has this weight on him of he's going to dinner with the Stacys, but he remembers the promise he made. Yeah. And it's this is thing number two that I question in this movie of at the end of the last movie they kind of left it iffy of whether Gwen and him are going to get back together. Uh, they left it on an upward note of, yeah, he might break the promise. This movie makes it to where Peter is waffling and apparently in the conversation with Gwen has waffled a few times to the point that she goes, no, you don't get to do this. I break up with you. Yeah. And I do like that. Yeah. I do like that she takes charge of the moment and and says that she won't be emotionally manipulated. Yeah. Um, and then we get the first of our, our series of montages, and I actually appreciate the montages in this movie, where Peter is on as Spider-Man, and he's coming home, and he's he's half of his costume's torn up, he comes home another time covered in soot, uh, he's having to cover with his aunt for doing laundry, because every time she goes in after Peter, everything's turned blue and red. <laughs> um, and it's, it is classic Spider-Man. Um, around this time, we find out that, uh, Norman Osborn, uh, is not just sick, but on his deathbed, uh, played by Chris Cooper. Uh, Dane DeHaan plays Harry Osborn. And... Harry talks to Norman in his bed and Norman is green with extremely long fingernails uh, and looks very goblin-like. Yeah. And Norman dies, passes on. He says, hey, I'm dying of this thing. You have it too. Um, you need to find a cure or you're going to go downhill quick. And so... Uh, Norman dies. Pete's at home, finds out on the news that Norman Osborn died. Uh, and he goes to pay his respects to Harry. We find out that Harry and Peter, uh, when they were young, uh, hung out, I'm guessing, in elementary to early middle school. Um, like, my thought was, was that before he went to live with his aunts? I think it's around the same time. Um, they mentioned it had been 10 years since they'd seen each other, so... Around the same time yeah. would be my estimate. Um, so, these two have an interaction that I appreciate. Uh, I appreciate that Harry up front is very distrustful of Peter um, because everyone talking to him is 
kind of walking on eggshells. They're manipulating. Uh, and when Peter comes in and wants to talk, he thinks there's someone here who wants something. And when Peter goes, hey, it's okay, I'll leave. I just wanted to stop by and say, offering my condolences. And if you need anything, just let me know. And they have good rapport. And they actually hang out with each other a bit. And in approximately two to three minutes of this film, Harry and Peter have more of a friendship than in all of the Sam Raimi films. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Could they have played it out more? Absolutely. They could have introduced it in, in the first movie. But they did. Yeah. And it's okay. Uh, I, I find that entirely forgivable. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate their back and forth. Hey, you seeing anyone? Uh, there's a girl, but it's not working out. It's complicated. Well, and similarity to, similarity to the Raimi films, except for the fact that he goes, it's complicated, it's not really working out. And he says up front, it's not really working out, which is an admission that, hey, I might have pooped the bed on this one. The relationship's not working out as opposed to peter's hey i've kissed her twice she does she only knew it was me once we're not together because i chose not to be together um and another thing that's different in this is uh peter and gwen talk to each other peter and harry talk to each other yeah. when people have conflict they talk to each other sometimes it ends well sometimes it does not uh and so, as the movie progresses, Peter and Gwen kind of uh, reconnect. As they're reconnecting, we're reintroduced to Max, who is an engineer at uh, Oscorp. Initially, I really disliked the the playing up of him as kind of a kind of a comical doofus. Uh, it a lot of people have compared it to. Uh, the kind of goofy before villains in Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. And they're not wrong in that, but people talk about the performances in those films that they're talk that they're referring to favorably yeah. most of the time. And, uh, but they talked about this one unfavorably. And I, I appreciate what they were trying to do with it. I think had they played it more, what's the word I'm looking for? Earnest. Had they played it as more of an earnest loneliness, uh, with Max, I think it would have won people over more. I, I, I do find the obnoxious nerdiness, the Napoleon Dynamite of it all, I find that kind of off-putting. Mm. I think had they played more into the the genuine loneliness, you you read the lines that Jamie Foxx is saying in those scenes, and it's like, man, that's that's lonely, that's sad, but they're playing this for laughs. It, if, if you if you change this just a little bit, it's you root for this guy. Yeah. You you want him to be seen because once he becomes Electro uh, in the scenes where he is elect 
electrocuted by these, again, comic book electric eels at this power plant, yeah. um, he he becomes immediately a more sympathetic character as a supervillain yeah. than he was as a man. Yeah. Um, are you seeing... Oh, I see. Uh, but... Again, that's this movie. This movie is simultaneously kind of heightened, very comic booky, but it's also leaning into that realistic, uh, that realistic relationship side of things. And I don't know why it works for me, but it works for me. So Peter and Gwen are reconnecting. Electro comes onto the scene right as. Peter and Gwen are kind of landing the plane on. Okay, maybe we reestablish connection. Uh, Peter has to go save the day. Um, Gwen mentions that she's gotten an offer for Oxford. And immediately, Peter has to run off save the day. Stops Electro. We get some really, really cool super heroics where uh, one of the web shooters gets blown up while he has to use the other to save people in Times Square. It's a really great set piece. Um, and Peter goes back and, okay, you're, you're heading to Oxford. And that's the end of the conversation. And they never really finish talking about what they start talking about yeah and that's a classic spider-man trope spider-man peter parker especially when he's in relationship with the person who knows who he is he can't finish the conversation and even after all said and done he's not in a good emotional or headspace to finish that conversation and uh something the movie does that watching it this time I was watching it with more scrutiny than past times is the the spider stalker of it all um spider-man follows the person he's into yeah um played much better in this film than in the <laughs> Sam Raimi films but um it, it helps that he admits it and it helps how Emma Stone reacts to it yeah but it's it's one of those things of I probably would have made this more fate unless he's a stalker. Yeah. Um. It. They shot it well. They acted it well. Would have would have changed some stuff to be more. Uh, we ran into each other rather than I'm checking on you once a day. Yeah. Uh. All right. Movie goes on. Movie goes on. Uh, Electro is captured and taken to uh, Ravencroft. I think maybe we'll just call it Marvel Arkham because yeah. it's Arkham Asylum for Batman, except it's Marvel. Yeah. Um, and uh, Doctor Kafka is there and doing experiments on Electro. Uh, this is an interesting and weird section in the movie. Uh, this again, very heightened character of Doctor Kafka. Um, the scenes surrounding Electro and then later scenes in the movie um, with once Harry becomes the Goblin they feel almost like they were directed by a 
a different director than the person making the rest of the movie. Um, in that, it goes so far into the cartoony that it feels divorced from the rest of the movie. The Dr. Kafka character is this kind of mad scientist, and that's a very interesting choice and a very comic booky choice, but it feels a little out of place in this. It doesn't pull me out of the movie, because this movie has so much going on that somehow it, in the blend of everything going, it worked for me. But I, I wonder, hey, what would it have looked like to tone this character down like 10%? Yeah. Just the same as playing Electro is more earnest and less comical. Playing this guy as, oh, I'm, your, I'm a friendly scientist, and then you find out, no, he's a sinister, evil scientist. Would have been a different movie. Anyhow, uh, uh, Peter is trying to figure out what is going on. Uh, Gwen's about to move away. He can't figure out what's going on with his parents. Everything that he has learned about his parents through the grapevine is that uh, they apparently embezzled a bunch of secrets and ran away um, and died in the process. Um, and... Gwen's moving away, he's stopped Electro, and so the search becomes, okay, I've got to figure out what's going on with my parents. And so he finds this Roosevelt uh, reference in his dad's notes. Uh, apparently he kept a bunch of subway tokens inside of a TI-80 calculator as well. And he decides to go visit the secret lab. Again, had we avoided the scene at the beginning with the parents showing them uh, trying to get the truth out, when Peter hears all the stuff about his parents, it makes us ask questions. And when he arrives at the station, we have the record set straight. Yeah. There is no suspense for us as the audience with that opening. Yeah. Uh, and we could have used some around this point in the movie. We could have used some suspense for Peter. Uh, he does have the angst of not being able to be with Gwen. He does have, uh, for the character, the suspense of his parents, but we don't. We don't share in that with him. Uh, and it would have been nice to. Uh, Peter runs into Gwen before she goes into her interview with Oxford, um, talks her up, says that he's with uh, Harvard and he's one of the youngest professors. Um, so she goes in for her interview. Uh, Peter finds out that his parents uh, uh, were trying to uh, make sure that their research uh, used by Norman Osborne was being used for good, not for evil. And so one of the ways they made to prevent things from going bad was he injected his blood into the spider line. So the only way that they could successfully be used was with his blood. Um, uh, as all of this is going down, if I'm getting timeline wrong, I apologize. This movie is a jumble. I enjoy it. It's a jumble. Um, Harry has asked Peter to ask Spider-Man for his blood uh, because he's dying and he thinks that his radioactive spider blood might actually be able to help him. And Peter, instead of going, there are bigger things than you and me and walking away and never talking about it again, says, I'll try, man. I'll try. I'll ask. Yeah. 
and his friend is desperate. And so Peter arrives as Spider-Man and he's like, hey man, I can't do that. This could be bad. It could kill you or worse. And tries to explain it. And as he leaves, Harry freaks out and he calls Spider-Man a fraud. And I was sitting there and I was like, I I feel like this is 80 yard. I feel like a more natural response would have been F you Spider-Man or or you're so full of it. Anything like that. It gets the point across and it feels a little it's kind of like the I am Spider-Man no more. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those awkward ways of saying what you're trying to say. Yeah. Um, so all of this comes to a head. Harry decides after consulting with uh, Felicity Jones, who's playing Felicia Hardy, uh, who would be the black cat. Um, he's going to be framed for Max Dillon's uh, whole thing that went down. Uh, so he is effectively fired from Oscorp. He goes in, breaks Max Dillon out, uh, and then goes back and gets into secret projects at Oscorp. In the meanwhile, uh, Gwen has been accepted into Oxford, uh, and Spider-Man, as she's about to leave for summer classes, spends a web on the Brooklyn Bridge that says, I love you. Um, and goes, tells her, hey, you don't need to give up your dream. I, I want to go with you. I want to be with you. And says, hey, there's crime in London. I'll go with you. It'll be okay. And as this great reuniting of these two people is happening, uh, Electro enacts his plan. They're going to shut down the city, get all the power, and kill Spider-Man. Again, too many plot threads running. Yeah. Flaw in this movie. I still enjoy this movie a great deal. Uh, Harry injects himself with the spider venom that they had on file in Secret Projects and starts turning into a monster. Um, And... All of this happens and leads into the third act. And if you thought it was busy before, just you wait for this last 20 (laughs) minutes. All right. And we are in the climax of this film. So as... Our two lovers have reunited. The villains have enacted their plan. Uh, Everything goes down uh, in the city. And a lot happens. (laughs) So simultaneously, Harry is injected with the serum that makes him into a monster. Uh, He puts on the equipment that is going to transform him into the supervillain, the goblin. Uh, Electro is attacking a power station. Uh... Peter has figured out uh, that uh, via Gwen that he needs to magnetize uh, his web shooters. And something I really, really enjoy during this uh, sequence, she goes, have you tried this? And he goes, no, I haven't tried this. And she goes, yeah, that's why you were second in the class. (laughs) Um, 
And then uh, he goes. We get a really great fight uh, throughout the electric plant uh, where Electro uses dubstep uh, Itsy Bitsy Spider um, in his fight. And something I enjoy about this movie and the last movie to a certain extent that in how they dealt with the villain is they actually managed to outsmart and outmaneuver the villain. Uh, in, in Spider-Man one, the goblin kills himself. Uh, Dr. Octopus, uh, just kills himself. The Sandman just kind of goes away into nothing. Um, in this film, Spider-Man outsmarts Electro and Gwen outsmarts Electro. And there's this great teamwork between them that I really appreciate. And again, Gwen even states out loud when, when Peter's like, hey, you can't be here. It's too dangerous. She goes, no, this is my choice. I'm staying. It's my choice. And it, it puts in stone that her character is in control of what she's doing. It may hurt her. She's still the one who makes this choice. And that, again, we harped on it a lot last week, but I want to touch on it again. It is so different from the character of Mary Jane in the first movie who had no agency, who had no purpose other than she was always going to be with a guy pining after another guy. And that was such a mistreatment of that character. And the Gwen Stacy character is is what the Mary Jane character should have been. It's a character who you can remove the smarts. She doesn't have to be the smartest. She still has agency. Yeah. The agency is what's important. The willfulness is what's important. The fact that she's with a superhero and she could probably die at any moment, but she's the one who goes, no, this is my choice. I'm here. I'm going to help. But it depends on the writers and the caretakers of these films to make that choice. And they allow Gwen to do it. And there are consequences. Yeah. Um, And so they take down Electro. And in the movie theater... I knew that we were going to get a secondary confrontation. Uh, the ad... I, I don't love advertising for films, especially big budget superhero movies, just because so much gets ruined these days. Yeah. And, and taken away from the experience. Um, it's one thing for me to look up a plot online. It's another thing for the advertisements to tell you everything. Yeah. Um, and we knew that the Green Goblin was coming in. Um, or the goblin and uh, Harry arrives as the goblin and I've got to be honest I really like the makeup look I've heard a lot of people very critical of it I like the makeup look just because it's it's expressive you get facial reactions as opposed to a stiff mask yeah Um, and would I have put this in a different film? Maybe the next film? Yeah, probably. Um, I would have loved to have seen the the goblin played by Dane DeHaan get more than a few minutes. I, I feel like he gets shortchanged. 
The minute that he gets fired from Oscorp, he turns on a dime and goes from someone who is very earnest in trying to fight this life-threatening illness to he is a full-on supervillain yeah. and wants Spider-Man dead. And it's his character turns on a dime and doesn't have that full arc. You've got the beginning of the arc at the beginning, but then it, it it's like they cut off a section. Yeah. And I would have I would have loved to have seen that have more time to breathe. Um, I understand why not. Again, this movie is trying to jumpstart a shared universe, and it suffers for it. But I feel like the beginning of that arc that his character has, and even the end of it with the goblin. If you showed that to me disconnected, just the goblin sequence at the end of this film, it's an incredible fight between Spider-Man and the goblin. Him hunting down Gwent is actually really cool. They fight throughout this clock tower, and it's a really great set piece. And it all culminates in Spider-Man beating the goblin and trying to save Gwen, and she falls, and... He goes to catch her, and it's too little too late. Yeah. And Gwen dies. And it's one of the most famous comic book stories of all time. Spider-Man 121, the night Gwen Stacy died. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the best done this story has probably been done outside of Spider-Man Blue, which is... Uh, a four-issue comic run uh, by Jeff Loeb that's really, really great. Um, But it's the story of this girl was full of life and she was everything to Spider-Man and then she was gone. And you're tearing up right now. (laughs) Yes. Again, Andrew Garfield sells the tragedy. In, in this movie, when things go wrong, Andrew Garfield is the emotional anchor for the whole film. Um, we didn't talk about it earlier, but uh, he starts when he's searching for uh, Roosevelt. He, he breaks down talking to Aunt May, and she breaks down. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I like how, like, when she breaks down, she sees his wall where he's got all these pictures and tape lining everything, trying to figure out what's going on. And she comes in and sees that, and he walks in. And so he tries to ask her about it. He's like, no, I'm the one that was there for you. I'm the one that did all these things. I'm basically your mother. Yes. I'm the one who loves you, all that stuff. You're my boy. Yeah, you're my boy. I was trying to remember. You're my boy. That's, I raised you. And um, in that scene, there's just so much power in that, in him going like, yeah, that's true. This has nothing to do with that. Yeah, there's... It's a great scene. In the mix-up of, of leading into this, I've, I've jumped over it, but yeah. it's a great interchange between those two really great actors of... Two characters want fundamentally different things and are, they have the potential to miss each other. Mm -hmm. Just like every conflict you have ever had, 
where you want something and the other person wants something and you're both going after the thing you want and you're missing each other, even though, ironically, most of the time, you want what the other person wants too. Yeah. But you're on your thing and they're on their thing. And in that moment, Peter could shut down and go, well, you're not my mom and walk away. And that's how in the Tobey Maguire movies, it probably would have played out. Yeah. In this movie, he breaks down and says, of course I'm your boy. Yeah. Of course you you are. But this isn't about that. I need to know where I came from. I need to know who my parents were. And that's what he's asking for. He's not asking to remove himself from the situation he's in. He's asking to know his history. Yeah. And as two people who are pursuing adoption and we're doing classes on um, family of origin for our for our children, our future children, um, we are looking at the fact that as much as possible, we need to at the very least know about, if not know, our children's birth parents. Yeah for medical reasons, for cultural reasons, yeah. for, for... For them to know where they come from. Yeah. So much of our identity comes from our past. And this movie is about identity. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I think that's why that scene hit me so much is because I was thinking about that. And like, for once, when we do bring a child home. And yeah. Just that fight in, but you're my child. And I do hear, like, I read blogs and stuff of adoptive moms who are like, why do they want to meet their birth mom? Why do they want this? I'm their mom. And it's, it's also the identity for the birth mom, for the adoptive mom as well. But she just understands that this is what your child needs. Yeah. And it's, it plays into, at, at this death scene, Gwen has been Peter's anchor in the present he learned about his parents past and he knows that aunt may was his past but gwen was going to be his present and his future and that's gone and he goes into this depression and we we learn that spider-man is not around for five months um and from jail the goblin directs the gentleman and they start forming the Sinister Six with Alexi as the Rhino. And Peter watches Gwen's video and she talks about choosing hope. And no matter no matter what. Yeah, no matter how bad your day's going. Yes. And it's it's this great moment. He sees that the rhino's downtown. And, oh, as we get here, I'm reminded of another thing I skipped over. One of Spider-Man's many neighborhood good deeds is uh, this little boy, Jorge, is bullied coming home from the science fair. And he helps fix Jorge's wind turbine. And when Spider-Man arrives on the scene, Jorge is dressed as Spider-Man and he's facing down the rhino. Yeah. And he... He goes up and he goes, Hey, Spider-Man, I'll tell you what, I'll take it from here. Why don't you go over and check on your mom? Yeah. And, uh, and Spider-Man sits there and he, he faces down, faces down the rhino 
and the movie ends right as they engage in in a fight and it's perfect we don't get to see the whole fight and it's perfect yeah. it's the perfect end to this movie yeah and if you've got a problem with how jumbled this movie is that's fine this movie has tons of problems if you don't like it i get it this movie works so much for me and so much of it is the relationships and how successfully it pulls those off in a heightened world this is more heightened than the last movie for sure and it's the Spider-Man story I wanted. It's um, it's really, really good. It's it's so close to great, I can taste it. And and with some some editing or, or different choices, I think it would have been I think it would have been remembered as one of the all-time greats. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm sad that it's not, but I enjoy it for what it is. Not what it could have been, but what it is. For what it is, I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and this movie leaves such a a bittersweet taste for me. Uh, it's it's sweet in that it pulls off the dynamics of a superhero and relationship of somehow bridging drama and comedy and all the Spider-Man-ness of it all into a movie. It's bitter for me that Andrew Garfield didn't get to complete the arc. Mm -hmm. it, it's bitter for me that so much planning went into what the next six movies were that they, they didn't really allow this one to breathe in itself. And, and it's great and it could have been better. Yeah. And bittersweet. Bittersweet is the term I use because I'm sad. I'm sad that uh, for the next few weeks we're not going to be talking about the Andrew Garfield third movie or the uh, the the Andrew Garfield fourth movie. We're we're talking about um, good movies. The the rest of the movies we have to talk about, I will say, are really fine superhero movies. Mm -hmm. They don't affect me as much as yeah. the Andrew Garfield movies do. Yeah. And I, I understand why. he He's phenomenal in this. He is an emotional anchor as an actor. Um, we, we watched Tick, Tick, Boom uh, last week. And I cried through a majority of that film. And it's because of his performance. Yeah. He anchors that movie. Um, and I, I feel that something was lost. I, I, I feel that something was lost in abandoning the plans for, uh, the franchise of the amazing Spider-Man. So, so behind the scenes stories that have come out in the past couple months is that around the time this film released, uh, it got a lot of critical backlash and Kevin Feige went in and met with uh, Amy Pascal and basically told her uh, the Amazing Spider-Man plans and plan spinoffs weren't going to work. And they really needed to think about uh, coming up with a new Spider-Man to loop into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. And she kicked him out of her office. 
And I have to be honest, I get emotional thinking of this film. I would have too. I would have kicked him out of the office. I probably would have cussed him out. And um, I might have thrown something. Um, because there is so much promise. And there is so much potential. And at the end of the day, I think that Sony and Marvel made the right decision. It's really hard for me to say that because I wanted to see more with with the Spider-Man that I love. Yeah. Um, but what came about was a deal with Marvel, uh, Marvel Studios and Sony to share the Spider-Man character between a series of shared superhero movies, uh, Captain America Civil War, uh, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame, and two individual features, um, including Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. Originally, that was the deal. Far From Home was the end of the Sony and Marvel Studios deal. Tom Holland intervened. Got one more movie. Mm. And uh, that movie is what's coming out this Christmas. And will there be more than that? I don't know. I don't know. And honestly, I, I hope for the sake of all involved that this story wraps up nicely. Yeah. Because they're not promised another one. Yeah. As far as I know. And this has been a ride yeah. <laughs> for these. Those first three movies are a roller coaster. Uh, Spider-Man one is good, but messy. Spider-Man two is better, but messier. Yeah. Spider-Man three is just a mess. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man is dark, but I really enjoy it, especially the human dynamics. Amazing Spider-Man two is uh, it's jumbled, but I love it. It is it is a mess that I love. The way some people talk about Spider-Man 3, they I think they have the same affection for it that I have for Amazing Spider-Man 2. It's it's a mess, but it's a mess that I enjoy. And then there's Venom and Venom 2, and I'm going to tell you guys, I couldn't get through 30 minutes of Venom and I'm not going to try. <laughs> yeah. Um I no. It just I'm not going to do it. It gives me Spider-Man 3 feelings and I don't want to do that to myself yeah <sighs> I'm really looking forward to next week guys next week is what before this rewatch of Amazing Spider-Man I would have said is my favorite Spider-Man film ever I might say it again next week because I haven't really seen it since I bought it on 4k a couple years ago um, we're going to be watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse the first and to my knowledge only uh, at least until next year uh, feature-length Spider-Man motion picture. Uh, it is going to introduce ideas into the Spider-Man lexicon like multiverse. Um, it is going to be a little bit more comedic, a little bit more kid-friendly. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to watching something different. And then I'm looking forward to the MCU lead-up to No Way Home. So, any final thoughts from you? 
I know one of the things, I know I mentioned this last night while we were watching it, that I kind of wish they would have kept was um, Jamie Foxx. Oh, what's his name? Electra? Yeah. Max oh, Dillon. Max Electra. Dillon. Like, through the, when you first meet him and throughout, and before he's turned into Electra, he had the gap in his teeth. Yeah. That was very... Um, pronounced? Pronounced. It was very, like, character. Like, you see that and you know... No, that's just part of his character. That's who he is. Yeah. There's a word I can't think of. We talked about it last night. But anyway, it just kind of gave a, you know, it showed who he was, so you could recognize, you know, you knew who he was. But so I think there's, uh, I think there's twofold thing to that. One, the the gap in his tooth was, I think that's him without his veneers in, because um, Jamie Fox wears veneers, uh-huh. and. And then the Electro character is probably close to the Jamie Foxx that we're familiar with yeah. from the public where everything's fixed and perfect. Yeah. Maybe that's it, but I don't know. There was just something about, like, just to be like, yeah, this is him. There's, you know, there's his, the gap in his teeth that's very... Defining. Know, defining. Yeah, to kind of define who it is, this is the same person. And I know that's not really what we know of Jamie Foxx, but... I don't know. That was just one thing I, I felt like they should have kept in there because they made a point to have it in there. Well, again, there's a lot of things that are in this movie that maybe should have been left out and things that were left out of this movie that might have yeah. been better in. Um, but we can't change the past, no, at least not yet. And that was, that was my one criticism. One day when I have my portal where I can travel to alternate universes, I will watch all 17 of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man movies. <laughs> but until that day, we're going to watch the ones that we've got in this universe. And uh, we're going to enjoy the ones that we enjoy. And the ones we don't, we're going to pretend don't exist. Right. And, and that's how we're going to roll. Yes. So, guys, thank you so much for sticking with this rambling episode about Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh if I had to rank the Spider-Man movies right now, it would be Amazing Spider-Man 2, Amazing Spider-Man 1, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 1, Spider-Man 3 for what we have watched thus far. Yeah. And Spider-Man 3 is so far beneath any of the other films we have seen thus far, it might as well not be on the list. Yeah. Uh, because any of the others I would say are good movies, I would not say that about Spider-Man 3. Guys, thank you so much for sticking around this far. Next week, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, followed by the two Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man films leading into Spider-Man No Way Home. Guys, thank you so much. We will see you next week. Bye.